Okay, I got a little something here. I don't know if you can see this very well. We'll bring it up on the screen. This is an O-ring, okay? Just a little thing, this O-ring. It's made out of rubber, and man, they come in all sorts of sizes. Plumbers use O-rings quite a bit. So do auto mechanics, machinists, die makers. Basically, an O-ring goes where two metal fittings go together so that it can keep air and moisture from passing through. It just kind of helps... Uh, the fixture to be joined together. Just a little thing, this O-ring. You, you, don't, you don't think much about O-rings, right? And yet sometimes little things can be really, really important. It has been nearly 38 years ago that two O-rings, larger than this one certainly, but similar, were placed in the field joint of the solid rocket booster on the Space Shuttle Challenger. And we don't know if it was cold weather or a compression problem or human error during manufacturing, but those two O-rings malfunctioned. And the world watched in horror, maybe you remember, as the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded 73 seconds after takeoff, killing all seven crew members. Sometimes little things have profound significance. The Old Testament prophet Micah made a prediction in chapter 5, verse 2 of his book, some 700 years before Christ. He was a contemporary of Isaiah. And he said, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. In the New Testament, Matthew makes it clear that Jesus was this promised ruler that Micah said would come from the little town of Bethlehem. Now we're going to see today just how significant little things can be. Our series this month is based on popular Christmas carols that have stood the test of time. We're not talking about songs like Santa Baby and All I Want for Christmas is My Two Front Teeth, okay? These are, these are carols about Jesus that have stood the test for 100 years, 200 years, 300 years. And this morning, we're going to look at one of my favorites, O Little Town of Bethlehem. This poem was written by a pastor named Phillips Brooks. It was put to music by the organist at his church, Louis Redner. It was first sung in Philadelphia on Christmas morning of 1868. Phillips Brooks was considered by many to be the greatest American preacher of the 19th century. His first volume of sermons sold 200,000 copies. There's a building bearing his name on the campus of Harvard University. Not too shabby. But it was his little poem about a little baby in a little town that has impacted millions of people around the world for 155 years. Sometimes little things can be really, really important. So what I want to do, like we've done each week in this series, is kind of go verse by verse through the song. And I'm going to show you four little things that I think matter, especially this week. First thing is, it was just a little town. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. 
You know, there was nothing particularly impressive about the town of Bethlehem. It wasn't even much of a town, really, back in this day. It was more of a village, kind of a suburb of Jerusalem. Had Jesus Christ, the everlasting light, as Brooks called him, not been born there, we might only think of Bethlehem today when we hear about the ongoing chaos in the Middle East. But Matthew 2, 6 in the New Testament quotes this verse from Micah that we read earlier. It says, but you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. This would be like saying that New Haven or Balltown was going to play a significant role in next year's presidential election. And you would say, you know, I just don't really see that happening. Little towns. Little towns are fun. They're interesting. They can be a little bit quirky. When I preached down in Bainbridge, Georgia, it was a small town, but there was a little town nearby called Cairo. And yes, they made syrup there. And I got to be honest with you, I felt kind of sorry for the kids in the high school in Cairo because the local syrup company made a deal with the Board of Education that they would buy all of the sports teams' uniforms and athletic equipment if they called their players the syrup makers. I'm not making this up, okay? That's what they were, was the Cairo syrup makers. It is hard to be intimidating as a football player if you're a syrup maker. I'm just saying, okay? It's like you can just see the cheerleaders from the opposing teams. They come in, we got spirit. Yes, we do. We got spirit. How about you? And they're like, not so much. We're syrup makers. I mean, come on, right? I mean, this is just... It was just kind of weird. You felt sorry for these guys. Can't you hear Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount if he was from this town? Blessed are the syrup makers, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, it's just kind of odd. Nobody would have ever thought anything significant was going to happen there. And Bethlehem was kind of like that. I mean, nobody really thought anything important was going to happen in Bethlehem. But the crazy thing is that God often does the unlikely. You know, there's an old cartoon. It was printed at different times in newspapers around the country. It shows two farmers, not far from here, talking across a rail fence. And one of them says, anything new? And the other one says, oh, no, nothing ever happens around here. Oh, I heard there was a baby born over at the Lincoln cabin. But, you know, town like this, nothing important ever happens around here. And who would have thought that just a few miles south of here, Around Hodgenville, one of the greatest leaders our country has ever had would be born. But sure enough, you know, Hodgenville is a lovely town, it's quaint, it's nice, but not really much to write home about. And yet, out of this little place, such a significant thing. And, and, and truth is, we don't think about the Lincoln of the log cabin so much as we think about the Lincoln of the White House. That's it's how he ended up that we often think about. And similar to Bethlehem, sure it's called the city of David, but only because King David was born there. It was the King David from the palace in Jerusalem that we really think most about. We don't identify him so much with this little village of Bethlehem. The Savior of the world coming from Bethlehem just doesn't really seem very likely. 
In fact, Mary and Joseph really wouldn't have been in Bethlehem. Nothing, it's not like you wanted to go to the amusement park there. No, God had to get creative, so Caesar Augustus issued a decree that Mary and Joseph would have to go back there, and that's how they ended up in the right place at the right time, so the prophecy could be fulfilled. It was 85 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. God had to get creative, but he did that because Bethlehem, even though it was small, was part of the plan, just a little town. That's all it took. And the second thing I see here is she was just a peasant girl. For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above. While mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. O morning stars together proclaim the holy light and praises sing to God the King and peace to men on earth. The Gospel of Luke says that in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And the angel went on to say, Mary, even though you're a virgin, you're going to give birth. And she said, How's this possible? And the angel said, Through the power of the Holy Spirit. For nothing is impossible with God. And then Mary concludes by saying, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. You know, I don't want to offend anybody today, but, but some Christian traditions have elevated Mary to a position of prominence that frankly, Scripture never writes about and I don't believe ever intended. Mary was a virgin. Yes, she was sexually pure when Jesus was placed in her womb. She was a woman of virtue. She was a faithful Jew who loved her family. She loved the Lord. She was obedient to God. We see all of that in the Bible. But we don't have to rewrite the script. We don't need to suggest that she was sinless or that she was divine or that we pray to her or that she bodily ascended into heaven like Jesus did. Mary was incredibly special but she was also incredibly ordinary. She was a simple peasant. She was too poor to even offer a lamb as a sacrifice when the baby Jesus was dedicated at the temple. Two doves is all she and Joseph could afford. Joseph's occupation as a carpenter, well, it was respectable, but I mean, he's just a blue-collar worker living hand-to-mouth like so many in that day. He could not give his perfect divine son the life of nobility that he deserved. Mary and Joseph, neither one came from families of influence. They were just simple people. Oh, they were good people for sure, but ordinary in so many ways. You remember what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, God chose the weak things, the lowly things of this world to shame the strong. God often uses individuals that the world sees as insignificant. I mean, David, great king, sure, but he was just a shepherd boy, last in line in his family, but God raised him up. Gideon, a great warrior and leader of the Old Testament, was hiding in a wine press, terrified of the Midianite army when an angel showed up and called him a mighty warrior. He was anything but, but God made him into one. Amos, prophet in the Old Testament, he was a fruit picker. He raised a few sheep on the side until God called him to be a great prophet in Israel. Ordinary people 
God loves ordinary people. You know, in 1934, there was a farmer in North Carolina, and there was a revival coming to the area, and so he invited a group of his friends to come to his farm, and they were going to spend a day in prayer about the revival. And as they prayed, they just felt compelled to ask God to raise up someone from their own little community to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. The farmer's son was converted during that revival. Gave his life to Christ. Now, I bet that you've probably never heard of Mordecai Ham. He's the guy that preached the revival. But I bet you've heard of that farmer's teenage son who came to Christ then. His name was Billy Graham. And he did take the gospel around the world. You know, and, and I wonder if maybe you're here today and maybe you think, gosh, I just don't really have... I don't have much to offer. I mean, those people up on stage singing and playing, I, I can't do that. I, I'm not very talented or I'm certainly not the best looking person in the room and not the greatest athlete or the smartest student. I, I'm not a musician at all and I don't stand out in any crowd. I don't care how small the crowd is. Well, the cool thing is you're in good company. God loves people like you and me because he loves to work through ordinary people. People who give everything to God, who just say, here I am, use me. God loves people like that. Just ask Mary. That's the kind of person she was. Now, in verse 3 of O Little Town of Bethlehem, we're reminded that really it was just an ordinary night. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessing of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Brooks said that God's wondrous gift arrived silently, that few ears heard his arrival. And that's certainly true. I mean, Luke 2 says that while they were in Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph, the time came for the baby to be born. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, swaddling clothes, the King James Version says, placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The people in Bethlehem weren't expecting a miracle that night. I mean, it's, it's, it's no surprise. God had not spoken through a prophet in Israel for 400 years. Let that sink in. 400 years since God had spoken. Israel by this time is occupied by the Romans. Life is terrible. Right? Heaven was silent. Nobody had any reason to expect that this night was going to be any different than any other night. And you know, there are a lot of words that we could choose to describe the people of Bethlehem that night. Frustrated, maybe. The census, the taxes, all these crazy people coming to town. The pressure, they were exhausted. But I don't think expectant was a word that probably described any of them. They were just too busy. They were stressed. They were desperate to sort out the mess that they were going through. No time to watch for miracles. Get your head out of the clouds. Now, now, God could have gotten their attention. He certainly did that with a handful of shepherds out in the fields, right? But, but God did not force himself on the, the people of Bethlehem. They had their lives to live, and he didn't want to be a bother. 
So God kind of stepped into history without fanfare. You know, I've thought about this. I wonder if anybody who was there that night looked back later with 2020 hindsight and realized what they'd missed. Kind of the light bulb goes off, you know. It's like it's years later and Luke has written his gospel and they're hearing the gospel read and they start thinking, let's see, that would have been about 40 years ago and there was that census and Caesar Augustus and we were there in Bethlehem and there was that woman in labor. Gosh, you could hear her carrying on in the barn. Oh my gosh. (laughs) The Savior of the world was born 50 feet from where I was sleeping. I I wonder if anybody did that. You know, I wonder if they looked back and they they began to connect the dots. I, I don't know. But they didn't notice that night because they were busy. You know, the people in Bethlehem that night are frankly a lot like us. Their Roman taxes or our credit card bills and Their travel to Bethlehem is kind of like our waiting in the airport or the long drive to grandma's house. Their pressure to make ends meet is the same as many of us feel every time the paycheck comes and it's not enough. And it was easy to miss Christ at Christmas for them. And let's be honest, it can be easy for us to miss Christ too. Because God doesn't force himself on us. It was just an ordinary night. Ken Geyer, one of my favorite authors, said it this way. With barely a ripple of notice, God stepped into the warm lake of humanity. Oh sure, there were angels announcing the Savior's arrival, but only to a band of blue-collar shepherds. And yes, a magnificent star shone in the sky to mark his birthplace, but only three foreigners bothered to look up and follow it. Thus, in the little town of Bethlehem, that one silent night, the royal birth of God's Son tiptoed quietly by as the world slept. The royal birth of God's Son tiptoed quietly by as the world slept. There's a song that's become popular in the last few years by Casting Crowns. The the song's called While You Were Sleeping. And at one point in the song it says, Oh Bethlehem, what have you missed while you were sleeping? God, think of it. God became a man and stepped into your world today. Oh Bethlehem, you'll go down in history as a, a city with no room for its king. Just an ordinary night, ordinary place. That's what people thought. Which kind of brings us to the final verse of the song. And the most important little thing that's ever come down the pike. He was just a helpless baby. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. You remember what the angels said to the shepherds? Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. 
He is Christ the Lord. And, and this will be a sign to you. You're going to find the baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. I mean, it sounds so normal to us because we've been hearing it all our lives. The king of the universe is going to be in a feeding trough. That's where you're going to find him. Ron Davis said that sometimes delightful gifts are wrapped in very plain packages like swaddling clothes. Why did God do it this way? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, why not arrive in tremendous power? Why did God come as a helpless little baby? Why not a conquering king? Why not a, a giant of a man with a powerful army, host of angels to overwhelm the, the forces of Rome? I, I can think of a couple reasons. One, Jesus came not just to save us, but to identify with us, with our struggles, with our pain. Hebrews 4.15 says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin. He wanted to identify with us. He was born in poverty. He was raised as an outcast. He was hated by the religious establishment. He was pursued by his enemies, abandoned by his friends, abused out of jealousy, and killed like a common criminal. If you're hurting today, I'm telling you, Jesus understands how that feels. If your life is hard, if, if you feel like things never go your way, man, get in line. He gets it. He knows. And that identification is so profound. And I think the second reason Jesus came as a baby was just to prove his humility. You know, Philippians 2.5 says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a servant, and he was born as a human being. A guy named R.C. Sproul wrote a devotional several years ago about Christmas time. It was called Big King, Little King. He said, once upon a time in the tiny land of Israel, two kings were alive at the same time in the same place. One of the kings was about 70 years old. The other king was an infant. The big king was evil and the little king was pure. The big king was rich and powerful. The little king was stricken with poverty. The big king lived in an opulent palace. The little king was born in a stable. The big king's name was Herod. He was called the great, but he died and is now remembered as a little king. The little king grew up and became Jesus, the greatest king of all. He is now the king of all kings. And he is the Lord of all lords. See, God uses simple things to confound the wise. He uses weak things to humble the strong. God has the power to part the Red Sea and to send down consuming fire from heaven and to make the sun stand still. And he, he does those kinds of things once in a while. But I think God often does his best work through little things, ordinary people, subtle, quiet, just, just behind the scenes. 
Jesus came as a little baby in humility, proving that Almighty God would meet us right where we are so that someday we can go be where He is. Christ modeled humility throughout his life. I mean, he washed his disciples' feet. He submitted to the crucifixion. He refused to retaliate against his enemies. He remained humble. And this whole idea of God in the frailty of human flesh, the Bible calls it a mystery. In 1 Timothy 3.16, it says, Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. Speaking of Jesus, He appeared in a body. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and He was taken up in glory. I love these words from Carl Sandburg about the arrival of Jesus. He said, a baby in a feed box, back in a barn, in a Bethlehem slum. A baby's first cry mixed with the crunch of mule's teeth on Christmas corn. Listen to this, baby fists softer than snowflakes. The vagabond mother of Christ and a baby there in swaddling cloth on hay, all in a barn on a winter night. Why does the story never wear out? Because it's so profound. There's great power in little things. Somebody says to you, I love you. A little child says to you, I love you. The hug of a friend. A word of encouragement. An arm around the shoulder. A little help on a busy day. A tiny little envelope filled with cash. I'm just saying, you know, little things. Little things can be so meaningful. So here's what I want to do. We're going to wrap up in just a minute. I want to just make some suggestions to you. None of these are very extravagant or profound, but I'm just going to make some suggestions of some things that you might do this week. You're not going to remember all these. Maybe just maybe one will stand out to you, or maybe it'll make you think of your own. But I'd like you to try to think of something this week that might make Christmas a little more meaningful for you this year. So, so here's some thoughts. One is to read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20 out loud. Sit down with your family around the Christmas tree on Christmas Eve or before you open the presents. If you're by yourself, read it out loud anyway. There's just something powerful about that. Something I know families like to do is make a birthday cake for Jesus. Sing happy birthday to Jesus on Christmas. Light the candles. If you got little kids, let them blow out the candles. It can just be a, a great reminder of what this is all about. Invite somebody, maybe somebody who lives alone, to come to the Christmas Eve services with you. You know, the times are all different, right? This is the quiz, right? What time are, 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 the, are the services? 9.30, very good. 11 and 4.30. Okay, right, 9.30, 11, 4.30. Don't just... Tell somebody that. Bring them with you. And let that be a special thing 
for them. Send a note to somebody that you've kind of had a strained relationship with. People are a little softer at Christmas a lot of times. It might be a great time to kind of patch things up a little bit. Here's another thing. Make a phone call to a relative who doesn't expect to hear from you. It's not like it's not your thing to talk on, on Christmas, but, but around this time, just give, give them a call and, and just kind of catch up a little bit. And then, I love this, take Christmas cookies to somebody on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day who has to work. One of my favorite memories, honestly, when our kids were little, we would take homemade cookies after the nighttime Christmas Eve service, and we would stop at the gas stations and the hotels near our home on the way home, and we would take cookies in and just offer a plate of cookies for them to grab a, a few things off of. And it was, it was just such a sweet time. Truthfully, it was a little creepier when our kids were teenagers, so we didn't do it then. But, um, but when they were little, man, it was just so cool. I, some of my most precious memories... Little things. Here's the bottom line today. We could go any direction. This is just a little reminder to you before we wrap up. God can take whatever little it is you got, whatever little thing, and, and he can use it in a big way. I'm convinced of that. If you kind of devote it to him, that little bit of talent you have, that little bit of money that you have, that little opportunity for service, that little plate of Christmas cookies. If you just kind of devote that to God, I think he can do something that might matter way more than you think. Phillips Brooks, the author of our carol for this morning, once said this, it's while you are patiently toiling at the little tasks of life that the meaning and shape of the great whole of life dawns on you. God can take the little that you and I have got and he can use it in a big way. You know, I, I see people this time of year, and it's like people are looking for meaning this season by having the perfect holiday party or the perfect family gathering or maybe the perfect gift under the tree. And other people maybe are a little more focused, and they're looking for Jesus, but they want some kind of dramatic experience. They're hoping for some kind of spectacular epiphany. And I'm telling you, if you're counting on that to make Christmas meaningful, I'm afraid you're going to miss it. Because it is often more subtle than that. God doesn't overwhelm like that very often. I mean, sometimes. But the first Christmas was just a little town. It's just a peasant girl, just an ordinary night, just a helpless baby. Easy to miss on that first Christmas. I just don't want you to miss it this Christmas. A guy named Ace Collins wrote a book called Stories Behind the Best Loved Songs of Christmas. And he shares information about Phillips Brooks, the guy who wrote A Little Town of Bethlehem. Brooks graduated from Harvard in 1857 and from the Episcopal Theological Seminary in 1859. He became the pastor that year of the Holy Trinity Church in Philadelphia. And he was a powerful preacher, inspiring music by organist Lewis Redner. The church just exploded in growth. But then in 1861... The country was plunged into civil war, and there was so much pressure. 
And he felt the weight of that. He's trying to help his congregation maintain peace in the midst of fear and turmoil. By the end of the war, he hoped that, that joy would return to the church, but it just didn't. And then President Lincoln was assassinated. And although Brooks was not Lincoln's pastor, he was asked to preach the president's funeral. And the senseless murder of such a great leader just left him discouraged and, and exhausted. And as 1865 wound to a close, he asked his church for a sabbatical just to get away and rekindle his faith. He took a trip to the Holy Land and it changed his life forever. He was there on Christmas Eve. He was in Jerusalem and he felt like he just needed to get away from these hundreds of pilgrims who had come to the Holy Land. And so he borrowed a horse late in the day and he set out across the countryside. And he said at dusk, as the first stars appeared in the sky, he rode into the tiny remote village of Bethlehem. And a sense of awe overtook him. Brooks said that there were shepherds on the hillside very near the place where shepherds would have been 1,900 years before when the angels came and told about Jesus' birth. He looked out over the flickering lights of the town and he said he felt this wonderful stirring inside, a stirring that he later told family and friends would forever sing in his soul. He returned to Philadelphia. He felt rejuvenated. He, he felt so much better. But he found that, that even though he was gifted with words, he just could not put into words the experience of that, that night. He just, he, he just couldn't communicate it. He was frustrated by the inability to get people to understand the impact. It wasn't until three years later, as Christmas was approaching again, that he was reminiscing about that late night ride through Bethlehem. And as he relived the experience in his mind, he jotted down a little poem that seemed to float around in his head. And he reached out to Lewis Redner, the organist, asked if maybe he could compose some music to go with the poem. And Redner said he struggled for hours at the piano during those days. Nothing came to him. Finally, on Christmas Eve night, he went to bed. He gave up. And while he was, <laughs> he was just lying in bed, and this haunting melody came into his mind. And he got up and he wrote it down. And the next morning, Christmas Day, 1868, for the very first time, a group of people sang together. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. And 155 years later, we still sing the song. And we still remember the power of what happened there. By the time Phillips Brooks died in 1893, that song had become a favorite around the world. You know, I, I guess I would have to admit that, oh, Little Town of Bethlehem is not my favorite Christmas carol. It's, it's way up there. It's in the top handful. It's not my favorite. There are others I like more. But I will tell you this, probably my favorite line in any Christmas carol is in this song. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. 
the hopes and fears of all the years. I don't know what you're hoping for. I don't know what you're afraid of. I don't know what keeps you awake at night. I don't know what you wish would happen and it just feels desperately out of reach. But I believe that that night when Christ invaded our world, the hopes and fears of all the years were met right there. Right there. Just an ordinary night in a little town. The light of the world stepped into our world and changed everything. Let's pray. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. Lord Jesus, we want you to invade our world. We want you to come into our mess and help us. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. Salvation comes from you, Lord Jesus. Redemption comes from you. Transformation happens only because of you. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. Lord, the gospel is good news. It brings hope to the world. Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us, God in us. Lord, we invite you in today. We welcome you in today. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.